But I would say the more important part of a successful weight loss program is the support that you give to the pet owner for the duration of that program. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Chemin Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where your host seeks to discuss current research from around the world and how we may apply to innovation in the pet food industry. I'm your host, Julia Pazali, and today I have the distinct pleasure to speaking with Dr. Marian Marcy. Welcome, Dr. Marcy. Thank you so much. Uh, before we start talking about science, could you briefly tell us and the audience a little bit about your journey and how we end up where you are today? Sure. So um, I am from the U.S. and uh, initially started my journey in veterinary school all the way back in, when was that? 2004, I think is when I started vet school. Um, And initially, I went into veterinary school thinking that I was going to go into general practice. That's the exposure of veterinary experience that I had always had. And while I was in veterinary school, I had a fantastic mentor and I was talking to him and just saying, I'm not quite sure what I ultimately want to do. Now, I don't know the general practice is where my heart is anymore, but I don't know where I should go instead. And he was great, started talking to me about some of my own personal interests and helped me develop this idea that, hey, I was interested in my own personal nutrition. And I didn't know at that time because we didn't have anyone at uh, the veterinary school where I was attending. We didn't have anyone who specialized in nutrition, but he helped get me set up with a couple rotations during my clinical year. And that exposure, I spent a uh, rotation with Dr. Julie Churchill, who's at the University of Minnesota. And after that exposure, I was hooked. I was very interested. And then after finishing veterinary school, I did a rotating medicine and surgery internship. And that facility was great. They helped me get set up with a nutritionist who was in a private practice in the area, uh, Dr. Lisa Wee. And so I did a rotation with her as an intern. And at that point, definitely decided this is what I wanted to do. So I was fortunate. I was able to get a residency position in nutrition at the University of Tennessee. And then while I was there, a PhD project, which I know we're planning on probably talking about today. And then after that, uh, moved around a little bit again. I went into private practice as a nutritionist for a couple of years in a very busy referral practice setting. And then I came back to the University of Tennessee in 2016 and joined on board as a faculty member. I'm in a clinical position, but we do manage to squeeze in uh, quite a bit of research here and there. And so that's kind of how I spend my days right now. I 
do clinical service. I happen to be on clinic duty this week. And then I have some weeks where I'm off clinics and kind of working on all of those other things that we try to get done. Tired of one-size-fits-all solutions that don't quite fit? At Wilbur Ellis, we're bringing custom back to the customer. We know that for your pet food and treats to shine on the shelf, you need to start with the best. After all, even the best recipe is only as good as its ingredients. From nutrition to preservation to blending and bottling, make one call to Wilbur Ellis Nutrition to find it all. We don't sell to you, we work with you. A true partnership to meet your needs. Follow Wilbur Ellis Nutrition on LinkedIn to learn how partnering with a purpose could double the power of your team. That's awesome. And for sure, those mentors that we have in our pathways, they have a big impact in which career pathway we, we take. I'm glad you had one who took you to the nutrition side and not many vets, they have this nutrition training. So I'm glad that you you had, a, had an amazing training and is helping pets and pet owners in your career. So you mentioned your PhD research and I was reading about it. And I was really fascinated about the impact and the results that you got. And because I'm also love amino acids, when I saw Lucy in there, I was really interested as well. Do you mind telling us your audience uh, what was your research and the goal? And then we can start talking about the results you got and uh, the, your treatments as well. Yeah. So we were looking at a nutraceutical product that had data in humans and was kind of originally based on some rodent data where they had looked at a specific combination of leucine and pyridoxine, so vitamin B6, and trying to determine if you supplement that as part of a weight loss program, does it augment your weight loss so that you can kind of burn off more of that fat mass while maintaining muscle mass? And so we decided to go ahead and look at this product and see how effective it would be in dogs. For my research, we used uh, beagles. And we all know, you know, love beagles. They're they're very easy keepers. <laughs> they're very good at gaining weight. Um, and so I had a couple different groups of dogs. But what has been published is we were looking at dogs that we initially, they were ideal body weight. And then we obesified them. So we fed them to the point of um, where they were. I believe we were targeting uh, 40% body fat, but I think some of them we had to go more with 30, 35% because that was just what those dogs were willing to eat in order to gain excess weight. And then once they hit that mark, then we started a weight loss plan with them and we had a few different groups. So there was one group of dogs that were put onto a traditional therapeutic weight loss diet that was available at the time. We had some dogs that were given a placebo and just fed their same standard adult food diet. And then we had some dogs that were fed a standard adult food diet plus the nutraceutical component. And what we ultimately found is that as we expected, the placebo group didn't really lose that much in terms of appreciable weight during the, um, the weight loss aspect of the trial. And then the dogs who were on the nutraceutical lost comparable amounts of weight to the dogs who were on the traditional therapeutic weight loss diet. It's small groups of dogs. And so the way we looked at that data is that it's a very interesting and compelling consideration to say, hey, maybe this combination of leucine and pyridoxine could be very beneficial. But I think ultimately it was sort of the starting point. We still have to look at it um, in further detail and in clinical cases and just see, is that something that can translate over? 
Yeah, no, sales, as you mentioned, with a very target population, Migos, and small number of dogs, you see some, some results is really impactful. Do you do recall the mechanism or maybe leucine or a paradoxin they may be having this effect on like policies or uh, and maintaining in-body mass? Yeah, so um, there was some idea that they had to be in the correct proportion and that they might have a synergistic relationship with each other. And it really affected the mTOR pathway is um, what the rodent data has shown. And so I, I think that's really where the, the main mechanism comes out to be. And what was interesting when we were writing that paper up, which I didn't realize when we actually started the study, is that the leucine component of the traditional therapeutic weight loss diet was actually fairly similar to what we were ultimately using in our dose with the nutraceutical. And so maybe it, it is a little bit more having to do with the pyridoxine, but again, it was kind of early data and we would have to study that further to see. Yeah, I've seen some research as well in humans or leucine for sarcopenia and how it helps as well in maintaining and simulating mTORC and adult or senior people, elderly, they also need a higher uh, threshold of leucine to stimulate protein synthesis. So maybe those animals are going to be beneficial, benefit from the high leucine, no weight loss problems as you saw as well. Um, and maybe the requirement sometimes we to lose weight, you know, we're going to restrict the feeding and maybe those diets, they end up with a little bit lower, the intake of leucine, those animals are going to be lower. So the supplementation may be also beneficial. Um, and in your practice, do you, have you guys been able to translate this to uh, your weight, the weight loss program that you used with the animals in the hospital? Or what is your strategy for weight loss uh, when you use client-owned animals? Yeah, when we are working with client-owned animals, we still focus quite a bit on total energy intake and the requirements of that individual pet. But I would say the more important part of a successful weight loss program is the support that you give to the pet owner for the duration of that program. I think when I talk to referring veterinarians, the number one mistake that I see is that people are pretty good about setting up a weight loss program and recommending a diet and kind of saying, okay, here you go. And then it turns into good luck. I hope when you come back for your exam next year, yes. that you've successfully lost weight. And what we do through our obesity center that we have at the university is pets come in initially, they get started on their weight loss program, but then they have consistent recheck opportunities. We bring them in every month. We have a technician who is dedicated to our obesity patients. So they know if they're having a question or a concern or they're dealing with a food-seeking behavior or anything else that's going on with that program, they have pers uh, a specific person that they know that they can reach out to. And she's great about giving them advice. A lot of it is tips and tricks and talking to that owner about what is their feeding process in their own home and trying to come up with something that is realistic and that they can actually implement. Um, I know that we end up getting feedback from owners where they get frustrated if a recommendation is given and then they go home and say, there's there's no way I could feed this way. I have four cats in my house. You know, I can't do specific meal feeding because my other cat who's used to having the food roll down all the time then won't eat enough food. And so we have to, you have to actually get that history information from them to be able to talk about, well, maybe an automated feeder is what's going to work best in your home. Um, and so I would say for us, we spend, the nutrition is important, the calculations, how you set them all up in the beginning, obviously is very important. 
being able to check them, make sure that they're losing rate at an appropriate rate, all very important things that we have to do. But we would not be successful if we didn't spend a lot of time and effort on the support of the owner because they're the ones controlling all of the food. They're the ones dealing with all of the food-seeking behaviors. Um, And if you can't give them that adequate support, then your weight loss program more than likely won't end up being successful. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it's important to to educate people about that as well, because it doesn't matter if you formulate the best diet. The minor supplements, they may influence 5%, but the owner has that, that mentality and then educating them and bringing awareness and making them part of the, the journey and the process, I think is the most important part, as I mentioned. And unlike agriculture animals or livestock, that we control exactly what they eat and how much, and there is all the mo- emotion going on with pet owners and how the pet owner, they feel about it. And the begging behavior, as I mentioned, I have a cat and my cat is a little bit overweight, I'm going to admit, and that begging behavior is really affects myself. And even I have a kind of understanding about what is wrong, what is not, but there is emotions going on. And when you have emotions, it's much more, we need to consider that beyond science. So it's very important that you, you brought that up. Yeah. And, you know, I was at the ACBIM forum a couple weeks ago, and one of the sessions that I went to was about the psychology of feeding cats and dogs. And what I found was really interesting is they were talking about cats in particular. And after the speaker said this, I sat there and I went, obviously, this is definitely what's happening. But it was nice to hear someone say that scientifically, this is what happens. But she was talking about with cats in particular, how whether positive or negative, they just need one exposure to an experience to then decide that that's what's going to happen. And this is the behavior that I need to make that experience. And so the example she was giving was you have that cat who wakes you up at four in the morning because it's hungry for food. And if it's one of those days where you're really tired and you just want to go to bed and so you get up and you feed the cat so you can go back to sleep, that cat, that one exposure has now learned that they can get you out of bed. And if what they did initially doesn't work, they will amplify their behavior to get to a point where they pester you enough to get you out of bed. And I think everybody who has a cat can definitely sit there and go, yes, I can yeah, see this. Right. <laughs> that was a light bulb moment where I just thought, this is this is the type of thing that we have to talk to owners about, is that it's really hard to stay strong and steady sometimes with your weight loss program because in that moment, it's much easier to give in to your cat or your dog, um, but you may pay for that in dividends later on where they're exponentially increasing their efforts to continue to get their way. Yeah, I think cats, they train us more than the opposite. So Absolutely. <laughs> we work for them. You know? <laughs> they're very interesting animals. Um, how uh, There's any other nutritional management that beyond energy, I'd say the second or the third most important one, and in our opinion, um, they have a huge impact on the weight loss program um, beyond the energy also and beyond the any, the owner or how they're going to manage the feeding program. Yeah, in terms of the design of the diet itself, the nutrient profile. Yeah. Uh, so I do, I think it's really important for the diet to have a high protein content. I think that just makes sense. We want to maintain as much lean muscle mass as we have. So it makes sense to me that we would have that as a high component of the diet. Um, I think that in most cases on the dog side, I am looking for something that has a higher fiber content, um, You know, largely because that's going to help that owner feed a larger volume of food while keeping that um, calorie content under control. 
in cats, it, it, it depends on the individual cat. I do think a lot of the times if I'm feeding a kibble-based diet, I am looking for a product that obviously has the high protein, but also has some fiber enhancement. If we're looking at a canned product, then it just depends on the individual cat for how much I'm, I'm really looking at a higher fiber diet as something. And then um, I mentioned it earlier, it does still come down to the owner, but we've got some data showing that in cats in particular, using automated feeders and multi-cat households can be very beneficial. It gets you a little bit of an advantage for success of the weight loss program. But I think the bigger thing that we noticed in that data is that owners found it just so much easier to implement and to stick with the plan. Um, and so I think that, again, it just it comes down to that component. You can have the great diet perfect macronutrient profile, but if you have an owner who's struggling to feed the diet the way you want them to, um, then you're not going to be successful. So I think as much as we still talk about, I want it with this nutrient profile, I'm always thinking about my nutrients of concern. It still ultimately comes back to figuring out a way to get the owner to be able to follow that plan. Yeah. And I think it's the same for us when you go to a nutritionist is they can give you, and we know how to eat perfectly, but it's about implementing that and how it fits in our routine, how it fits your if you like it or not, then we're individuals as well. And the same applies to our pets. And I think sometimes you forget about it and try to implement. Some people try to implement the same weight loss program, the same diet for our population. But we need to think about the individual and what works for. I'm sure you probably have seen what works for one pet or one pet owner is not going to work for the other one. And having that individualization is very important for the success, as you mentioned. So when you mentioned about the uh, automatic feeders, so we provide those when, you, um, when you're um, developing this weight loss program. And do you recommend, I know because I have an automatic feeder for my kids, the my setting, I can go up to, for example, six or seven meals per day. Uh, do you recommend for a weight loss program or even for a healthy cat to maintain body weight, a specific meals per, meal per day? What have you seen that leads to the most success in a weight loss program and also on normal management for and dogs and cats and mankins, or in the case cats. Yeah, so in the project that we did involving cats and automated feeders, uh, we did have a feeder that could drop food six times a day. And it was compared to, I believe it was an automated feeder that would do twice a day, and then also compared to an owner who was meal feeding twice a day. And we didn't notice that much of a difference between the automated feeders. It was more just about the fact that there was an automated feeder as opposed to the manual filling of the bowl. Um, so I think a lot of that comes down to, again, the, the management and the relationship of the pet and the owner. So for example, when I have an owner who is spending a lot of time working from home, that's probably an owner where I'm going to recommend that they try to do something with a feeder that can offer food multiple times throughout the day. So that that pet is looking to the feeder for food and not coming to the owner who's there in the home trying to get stuff done and again, might be trying to run into a meeting and might be more likely to go ahead and get them some food or something to let them settle down. Whereas if they're used to, well, I know this automated feeder is going to go off um, four times a day, they get used to exactly what that schedule is and they redirect that behavior toward the feeder and they don't come to the owner to pester them really. Uh, so I think that's really important. It gets to be a little bit challenging if we have an owner who's doing a canned food or a homemade diet just because automated feeders are really best designed for kibble products. But you can find some that have ice packs and you can 
pre-portion the food into the wells. And so that's certainly something that we talk to them about. And then if there are multiple pets in the household, I'm a really big fan of the feeders that have um, microchip detectors or that have the chip that you can put on the collar so that you can have it to where it only accepts the cat who's on the weight loss plan. Or you can also have feeders that reject that cat so that cat can only get food when the owner is offering it and potentially the other cats in the house. Um, and then same thing for dogs too. I, I think I mentioned cats and feeders a lot, but it can be really helpful for dogs as well for the same purposes, just redirecting that behavior and getting less of a point of contact where the owner feels like their relationship is so centered around food with their pet. It actually, I think, can free them up so that they have more time to have more interactive play or have more um, just kind of social interaction with their pet instead of it just being all about when is the next meal coming. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point as well. And sometimes our pets, they start getting old and we don't play with them anymore. And that's important for them. And that relationship that we maintain with them beyond food is important for the owner to also realize that it can make their pets their pets happier or happy just with other socialization or playing time or walking. And even with cats, it's not only about food. They are lazy and they sleep a lot, but they also play and they also enjoy the interaction. And you have to be fun. The relationship has to be fun for, for the pet. Otherwise, it's not going to come to you if you only go for food. If that's the only bonding part of the relationship, it's going to be challenging to kind of uh, develop beyond that. And you mentioned the automated, uh, automated feeding, and I think that's, and you saw better results uh, on that uh, compared to when the owner was providing the meals. And the thing is because, as you mentioned, decreases begging behavior or that they are going to the owner only to, um, or not only, but they have the schedule to search for the food and they look for the owner, or also because the owner may overfeed a little bit or the portion is not going to be so accurate when the owner feeds compared to the automated, automated feeding. Yeah, so across the groups, the success of the weight loss plan, the automated feeders were mildly more successful. I would say probably not enough to where I would base a recommendation for an automated feeder just on that. I think you can absolutely successfully do a weight loss program with manual feeding. But the advantage to the feeders was that the owner's perception was that it was much easier. And so I think we all, again, especially thinking about the cat side, is that dropout of a weight loss program is a really big problem. You have people who are dedicated, they start, but it's really hard to stick with that program over the long term. And so the thought is that if they feel like it's easier, and if that's something that makes it so that they can stick with this program in the long term, your real advantage might be not just looking within the first 12 weeks of a weight loss program, is that maybe if you watch them out over a year, so 52 weeks on their weight loss program, are you more likely those owners who are using the automated feeder. We don't have the data to support that yet, but that would be my hypothesis. I would think that if you can make it easy and you can make it something that they can stick with, then potentially automated feeders might be something that would increase an owner's adherence to a weight loss plan. The other thing, again, a lot of this is very specific to cats just because I, I think it's it's tough to do a weight loss program in a cat. And I think that owners have a hard time bringing their cats into the veterinary office. So we are currently investigating um, whether or not you can use remote rechecks as an advantage to help, again, keep a cat participating in a weight loss program, 
but maybe making it easier for the owner so that they don't have to, you know, figure out how to get their cat into the carrier today and chase them all around the home and, and those type of things. So one thing we're looking at is periodic use of remote rechecks. We send an owner home with a baby scale. We uh, connect with them. Our technician who works with the OBC center connects with that owner via video consult. And we kind of track their weight that way and then periodically still have them come in to do in-person assessments with us. So our hope with that project is that we will see that you can still maintain good rates of weight loss, but again, hopefully improve your owner adherence to the plan. Um, but we'll have to see. We have to stay tuned to see what those results actually come out to be. Yeah, I'm for sure going to be looking for those results because as I said, I'm a cat owner on top of everything. So I'm <laughs> also interested, per- have personal interest. Right, and I absolutely. think with the development of the technology and those sensors, they are coming out more and more. So I think over the years, they're going to have more technology to support the um, income tracks and for sure it's going to help with the weight loss program, hopefully. And I know there are some researchers that are trying to develop an autom- autom- automated feeder that has a scale attached to it. So when the cats go to eat, you're going to be able to track their weight and also going to be a nice addition because they're going to be going to those feeders. Very similar that what has been shown and done in the swine industry, right on the sauce, they go to the, uh, to the automatic feeder. They have a scale on there so you can track their body weight. So that I think would be a great also technology to, to bring to, to this kind of problem. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's just another point where it makes it so much easier for the owner because it's all in one. They're going to get their food. So every day they're getting that um, that scale weight. Yep. So we talk about obesity and weight loss plan. And I think part of your um, research and clinical service is also on gut health or gastrointestinal disease. Well, do you mind explaining to us or showing what have you seen the most uh, on your clinic? What kind of GI um, pathologies are complications have you seen the most and we can go from there to talk about the nutrition management. Yeah. So certainly because we are a nutrition service, we do a lot of homemade diet planning. And as part of that, the percentage of our cases that are GI related are very high. And the majority of those are going to be chronic enteropathy, uh, plus or minus whether or not they have a protein losing enteropathy component. So we spend a lot of time doing that and trying to decide, is a commercial diet appropriate um, versus a homemade diet? Oftentimes, we'll get a pet who gets referred for a homemade diet. And in discussions with the owner, we can talk to them and say, hey, I don't know if you were aware, but you actually still have additional commercially available diet recommendations. And we talk through what's going to be the most appropriate. Again, thinking about the homeowner, the, the pet owner, and what is appropriate for them and feasible for them. Do they have the ability to prepare a homemade diet all the time? Do we need to go with something like the convenience of a purpose-formulated commercial product? But when we talk about homemade diets, we're talking to owners about, do we have to do something that is a novel protein source for you? Is it something where we're adjusting the fat content? Are we doing fiber enhancement? You know, the things with GI disease is that it's not always straightforward cookie cutter. Everybody gets this type of diet. A lot of it is looking at stool quality. What type of symptoms are they having? Do I need fiber enhancement? Do I need less of a fiber content? What kind of appetite does the pet have? Do we have to do diet rotation? You know, there, there's a lot. A lot of it is discussion with the owner to figure out what's going to work best for that pet. Do you mind explaining to your audience what is chronic enteropathy? Just because maybe some will have a vet background. 
Yeah. So chronic enteropathy is when you have GI disease, gastrointestinal disease symptoms. So vomiting, diarrhea, sometimes that can be over liquid diarrhea. Sometimes it can just be variations of soft stool. Um, nausea can be included with that. And usually they have to have at least chronic intermittent evidence of those symptoms for at least three weeks for it to be considered chronic enteropathy. So it's something that's not expected to clear up on its own. It won't be self-resolving. We have to go in and do treatment for it. From a diet perspective, sometimes patients can be what we refer to as food responsive. So we get them onto the appropriate formula. That's what helps to control their symptoms, and they may not need any other medical therapy. There are some patients, though, where they need a combination of both. Um, and then there are some patients where actually medical therapy is really what controls their symptoms. And we augment with nutrition, but the nutritional factors may not be the primary controlling um, treatment for them. And the etiology behind it is more genetics or do you have any other factors that can influence it? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a mix because we certainly have some breeds that are more prone. So we know there has to be a genetic component. There probably are environmental factors, um, but I think that's one of those things that is still in the process of being better fleshed out so we have a, a better idea of, is there a way that we can potentially look at an individual pet before they're showing any symptoms and say, hey, you have increased risk factors of developing chronic enteropathy later on in life. And I think based on breed, for sure, we know um, that I might be dealing with this in a French bulldog or in a Labradoodle. You know, those are just some of the breeds that we deal with commonly. But as far as good biomarkers in advance of when they start to show symptoms, there's there's nothing that's really available that I'm aware of that's uh, truly effective. No, oh, great. And for uh, you mentioned that it's very particular individual how the dietary management works. But if you give an overview or on um, if you have on. Um, a pet coming in with uh, chronic enteropathy, where do you start with? What kind of diet to look for? What kind of dietary components or macronutrient proportions are you looking at? Uh, decreasing fat or this kind of dietary yeah. management? So I think with gastrointestinal disease, there's a couple different categories that I think about. Um, the first one is usually considering a highly digestible diet, something that's easy on the gut, um, that I know those ingredients are going to be digested and absorbed pretty well, um, kind of reduce that workload on the GI tract in general. And so that's something that I always think about. Oftentimes, by the time a pet gets referred to me, they've already been through a trial of a highly digestible diet. So for me in my practice, I'm not often implementing that, but I think that's always something that has to be considered for these patients. We will often talk about novel protein, meaning a protein source that that pet has not been exposed to previously. And we'll also talk about hydrolyzed proteins, which is where the intact protein is broken into smaller pieces. Both of those have the, um, the advantage of trying to bypass antigenic stimulation, where if there's an immune response coming from the ingredients in the diet, we hope that by using a novel or a hydrolyzed protein source that we would be able to bypass that as a component. Sometimes we just do what we refer to as limited ingredient, but not necessarily novel. Again, it depends on the case. Um, oftentimes, 
I'm employing that most commonly for a pet who's really selective about what they want to eat, especially one who was historically selective before they started to show overt symptoms of um, chronic enteropathy. And so in those patients, to improve their overall food intake, I might have to rotate through a few different proteins, and it makes it hard to do that with just hydrolyzed or novel. So we'll do more of what we call common source. It doesn't work for every patient, but when we're in that situation where they have to eat something consistently, and I can get them to do that by rotating through different proteins, we'll do that. Uh, Like I said, sometimes we have to reduce down the fat component of the diet, that is a really important component while we have protein-losing enteropathy. So when um, they are not effectively absorbing their albumin and they're losing that within uh, their gut contents. So we'll adjust fat. If they have any evidence uh, on the dog side of pancreatitis, we'll reduce down their fat intake as well. And then fiber enhancement is something that we consider, and that a lot of the times is going to be based on getting information from the owner about what their pet's uh, bowel movements actually look like. If they're seeing evidence of mucus or blood in the stool, those for me are usually very strong indicators that I have to do some form of fiber enhancement compared to the diet that they are currently eating when they are showing those symptoms. And so I think about all of those different categories. What's nice is some of the purpose-formulated diets have all of those components in one product. So sometimes I can go ahead and, and say, all right, you are a pet who needs a novel or a hydrolyzed ingredient and fiber enhancement. So there are a few diets that meet those criteria, and I can go ahead and use those. Sometimes I have to look at a diet and say, okay, well, what can I get out of the diet? And then what can I do to supplement on top of that diet? Usually adding additional fiber is the most common thing that we do if the primary source diet that we want doesn't have enough of a fiber enhancement to it. Um, But again, a lot of that is coming down to that individual pet because I could see three different pets today for chronic enteropathy and their presenting symptoms and their presenting lab work could all be slightly different. And so one might need a novel, highly digestible diet and one might need a rotational fiber enhanced diet. Um, And I have to go through and just make those determinations. What I always tell every pet owner is that we start somewhere and then their individual pet is going to tell us if that is working or not. And then we make our best educated decision on, all right, what's the the next diet uh, that we should try to switch to if this one didn't quite work? Um, and I think most people now are recommending that you usually have to go through or you have to be willing to go through multiple different diets, potentially three, four different diets to really effectively determine whether or not diet is a a good component of the treatment for that patient. Yeah, and clinical nutrition is very individualized. And as you mentioned, it's going to be changing over and over. And it's great that the pet food industry and some companies are able to get us on a starting point and given a diet to kind of targeting all the macronutrients or specific components in the diet that are supposed to help most of the population or that specific population but of course, it won't have to change um, on the course of the treatment. And as you mentioned, the pet's going to tell tell you what's working and what's not working and how to change um, the specific strategy. We'll get a lot of feedback from practitioners where they say, why does this company have so many different diets? Why isn't it just the one you know, GI disease diet? And that's exactly why is because I could not effectively treat the spectrum of patients that come in with GI disease if we only had that one option. And so that's what makes it great is that 
as companies are expanding their options that are available for some of these therapeutic diets, it really helps us to hone in better and provide a better um, diet profile for that pet as the ultimate outcome. Is there any specific supplement or micronutrient or even macronutrient ratio that you have seen in maybe in humans that may be translatable to pets or do you think have you been using or maybe from reading some papers you think we can maybe in the future using dog and cat? Yeah, that's a really good question. What I tell people in general is that I am not a very big supplement pusher. Um, and the reason why I say that is because there are so many supplements that are out there that are um, minimally to sometimes poorly investigated. And I think yeah, it's really I challenging to know, is this thing that I'm recommending going to be effective? Is it going to be harmful? Is it going to have any interaction with some of the other medical therapies that they are on? I would say in terms of supplements that I use most commonly, I am a big fan of fish oil for overall anti-inflammatory benefits. Um, certainly patients with osteoarthritis using higher doses of that. I think that's something that's been shown to be effective. Um, we also use quite a bit of probiotics. And I know that's an area that's going to continue to expand as we continue to do work on the microbiome and determine what's the best combination of probiotic strains, what really is the best uh, concentration that you need to have in those products. Are there specific diseases where you should be reaching for a particular probiotic strain? Um, I'm intrigued by the yeast probiotics, whether or not those are is something that we should be adding in more routinely. I think right now, a lot of people will use traditional bacteria-based probiotics and then reach for yeast probiotics as a secondary fallback. Um, but I don't know if potentially that's something that we should be reaching for further. And then I know a lot of people are doing work just looking at amino acid profiles of um, pets with GI disease in particular. And so I don't know if down the road, if that's going to turn into, hey, we should maybe be supplementing this particular amino acid or this group of amino acids, uh, similar to what we were talking about with leucine with the obese dogs. And so I think there are some things that are coming but supplements in general are, are just challenging because they it's very easy to bring them to market with um, not as much data behind them proving their effect. Yeah, and it's not easy research, you know, and it's probably expensive, but we for sure need hypothesis-driven research to, to support the use of those nutraceuticals for sure. And microbiome is very intriguing for me because in humans as well, we think there's a lot of, in a healthy population, people are going to have different microbiome. So do you are should we try to make all pets with the same microbiome? And probably not. And that's why it's important maybe to have different options of those supplements as well, because it may work on some pets, it may work for not. And I know my area of expertise for sure, but I don't think having the same microbiome is gonna work for every specific pet. The same that doesn't work for humans. So when we see sometimes those studies that healthy microbiome, are we sure what is healthy microbiome? Is a very very, you know, obscure area that I'm for sure, as you said, it's going to have a lot of research going on in the future. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's hard sometimes to interpret those microbiome results that you get back or that an owner can just submit on their own sometimes um, and knowing, okay, what do I do with this information? Do I have to make a change yeah. <laughs> from what I see right now? Yeah, I think we're in an era of 
we have a lot of information, but what? What does it mean? How can you use it? Um, so it's good, but sometimes it can be tricky because some people can also, you know, divert information to what they want. But is it a topic for probably another conversation? <laughs> it's time for our famous three. ProAmpac, your companion in pet packaging. Visit pets.proampac.com to explore our innovative sustainable solutions, such as our QuadFlex recyclable flat bottom bags, ProDura poly woven bags, ProEvo recyclable paper bags with grease resistance, and our proactive recyclable film and pouches that run at optimum speeds on your felling equipment. Elevate your wet food, treats, and kibble brand by utilizing packaging that safeguards and preserves product freshness. Trust ProAmpac for packaging that cares for your pets and the planet. Pets.ProAmpac.com Well, Dr. Barthi, thank you very much for our talk. I want to finish our talk with maybe some other questions. First, do you have any pets, any dogs or cats? Yeah, so I used to have two dogs. I had two senior dogs who um, started to have senior ailments at around the same time. And so unfortunately, we don't have any pets in our house right now. We're kind of in that phase of it was a lot going through everything that they were dealing with toward the end of their lives. And we're just not quite ready to add anyone new yet. But we are definitely a dog household for sure. Yes. And this you have a lot of dogs and cats on clinics. So I'm sure you have a lot of pet love you know, going on at work. So yes, you're not missing <laughs> benefits from pets going on in your life. Yes. And my last question is, do you have any, maybe one or two tips for success that maybe work in your career or have you seen other people and you may share with us? Yeah, I think um, going back to my story from the beginning, I came into veterinary school. I had a plan. I was going to go into GP practice. That's what I knew. That's what it was going to be. And then I was willing to have conversations with people and try to recognize that my initial plan wasn't ultimately going to fulfill me. And then I was willing to investigate what are these out there options. I had no idea, number one, that veterinary nutritionists existed, which also meant I had no idea what they did from a clinical perspective. Um, and then also during my residency, I had some exposure to what they do from an industry perspective. Uh, and so I think you always have to be willing to be curious and investigate other options. And I do. It, a lot of people say you have to follow your heart, but I, I think that really is true. If you're in an area and you feel like you're not being fulfilled by that, you have to be willing to have conversations and investigate what can I do differently to be fulfilled. Um, and I love what I do every day. And I'm so thankful that I had that random hallway conversation when I was in veterinary school, because otherwise I don't know where I would be today. Yeah, no, those are great. And I totally agree with you when People have to have an open mind because usually your initial plan never works. <laughs> Life takes <laughs> yes, and to, I, you know, I am a planner. Places. I'm such a planner, yeah. so it pains me to say that, but it, it's it's totally true. <laughs> yeah, and just have an open mind and also be able to relocate. You know, jobs are usually they're not where we initially plan to to be in. There's always good people everywhere, good opportunities, and it's always great to have an open mind and explore those opportunities. Yeah. So thank you, Dr. Marty, for, for being the podcast today. I love our discussion and I hope we can have this conversation in the future. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is great. 
Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.